Before we get started this evening, let's uh, bow our heads together to go to the Lord in prayer. We always have a few moments of silent prayer just to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you are in a right relationship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are forgiven of all sins, cleansed, but that is our positional standing before God. But as we continue to live, we still sin, and so we need to confess our sins. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to acknowledge, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we confess sin, we're simply admitting or acknowledging to God that we have committed uh, these various, uh, whatever these sins are, and we're instantly forgiven and restored to fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we had this time together to come to before your throne of grace to bring uh, various uh, prayer requests before you to remember our missionaries, uh, specifically this evening, and remember uh, Jim Myers and his ministry and the things they have to get done before they leave to go back to Ukraine next week, and also having uh, uh, Paul and Lena here and their ministry in Ukraine. We pray as they travel uh, around the U.S. and talk to different churches that you will uh, provide for their ministry. Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to in time of need because we know that you uh, care for us, you're concerned for us, and you strengthen us, and you guide us, and you are our our fortification, our, our strength, our bulwark. You are our rock. And Father, we pray that tonight as we continue our study in 1 Peter and these important uh, doctrines of the Scripture related to our future inheritance, that you might help us to think our way through what the Scripture says and that as intended, this might be a motivation for us in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in First Peter 1. Now, we're studying through First Peter, but as happens so frequently when we're going through the Scripture, we find that certain uh, ideas or certain doctrines are taught, certain things are taught that that are not always clearly understood today, and they're really built on uh, an understanding of what the Scripture covers across the breadth of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so we are in that uh, kind of a section right now, and we're in First Peter, uh, actually in First Peter 1, 4, and we're looking at uh, the topic of inheritance. Now, just to put us into a context... I want to read this section because verses 1 through 3 represents a, a, a basic thought in the, original, uh, in the original Greek. This represents a sentence, and a sentence is your basic thought unit. And here Peter is talking about why we are to praise God because of what he has provided for us uh, in terms of our regeneration that we have new life that is a new life toward a particular goal, and that is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and it is toward, verse 3, or verse 4, toward an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, at a surface reading of this text, 
there are many people who have taken verse 4, the incorruptible, undefiled, unfading inheritance, as a reference to uh, our eternal security. And while that is certainly a part of this, that is not what Peter is focusing on here. He's focusing on something that is in addition to our justification, which is often talked about in Scripture uh, through terms such as inheritance and heirship and also in terms of rewards for the Christian. There's a distinction between rewards and salvation. Salvation is a free gift, whereas rewards are earned. And so we have to stop, and we started this last week going back and looking at, at the Old Testament. Now, as we look at this passage, I pointed out that we have these three uh, terms, living hope. Hope is a term that means, uh, that means a, a certain expectation, a confident certainty, a confident expectation of the future, and it's focusing on the future. The phrase reserved in heaven also focuses us on a future eternal destiny and something to be revealed in the last time, of course, focuses us on the on, on this this future, we know from other passages such as First Corinthians chapter three verses twelve and following that we have a future judgment for believers, not to determine where we're going to end up, whether heaven or the lake of fire, but a judgment based upon our our service, our spiritual growth in this life, to, to determine. Uh, and part of that is to determine our future roles, responsibilities, and rewards that are ours in the coming Messianic kingdom, which is a 1,000-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, which comes uh, after the second coming of Christ, and then on into eternity. And so this is something that is future. So the concept of inheritance relates to rewards, relates to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is also connected, as we saw in our study of Titus 3.7, because in 1 Peter 1, three it talks about blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Well, when we were studying what it meant to be regenerated, to be born again, to be given new life in Christ on the basis of faith in Him, we went to Titus 3.5, and Titus 3.5, as we see on the screen, states that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. So it's not on the basis of something we do. We don't earn salvation. Salvation is not based on our merits. It's based on what Christ did on the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sins. So that regeneration is an act that is performed by God uh, through the Holy Spirit at the moment that we have faith uh, and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. So works are excluded there in terms of regeneration. Works are excluded in terms of justification because, as, as Romans teaches, we're justified by faith alone. But then when we come down to verse 7, uh, Paul says that having been justified, so it's a past tense in the... Um, Harris Tent said that because we have been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there is a, a potential there of an inheritance. Whether or not we realize that additional blessing in heaven 
additional to eternal life, additional to eternity in heaven. Whether or not we realize that is going to be dependent upon our obedience. And, and, and we, I want to lay the foundation for that, and that's what I've been doing as we have looked at the biblical teaching on inheritance, the doctrine of inheritance. And just quick review for everybody, we looked at the words last week. There are basically three words, the word kleronimeo, uh, talks is the verb form and it means to inherit and that is used uh, in reference to passages like those who will inherit salvation and it talks about uh, used in terms of birthright it's used in terms of property that's received as a gift or property that's received on condition of obedience to certain conditions or as a reward for meeting certain conditions. So it has this idea, as we'll see, of essentially property, but it is something that is inherited. So that's the verb form. Uh, the noun form for uh, inheritance or property is this word, kleronomia, which simply refers to the the inheritance itself. And one thing I want to notice here, because I don't have it on the slide, is that the root form here, as you see, if we back it up here, you see that clay, this K-L-E-R here, right here, uh, is the root word. And the root noun is clares, which refers to a portion or a share of an, of an inheritance. Now, that'll be important uh, when we come back. So we have the noun for inheritance or property. And then third, we looked at the uh, desig- the, the word that designates the heir is the, the kleronomos, the one who, who, uh, receives the inheritance or the property. Now, in, in American and Western, uh, language, we talk, think of inheritance, we think if somebody dies and there's a bequest or there's a will and they receive certain property that had been owned by somebody else and now it's given to someone and passed on from generation to generation due to, due to their death. But in the scripture, this, this word group, the Old Testament word group and the New Testament word group basically have the idea of ownership or possession of something. And so it does not necessarily imply that someone dies in order to gain something. For example, in Hebrews 1-2 at the bottom of the passage, that we read that God in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. So that doesn't imply that somebody died and then Jesus inherited. He's the owner. He will be placed in a position of authority over all the universe on the basis of something. What did Jesus do? When we study through Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, Jesus becomes designated as an heir because he obeyed God during the time that he was on the earth, during the time of his incarnation. It is not Jesus in terms of his deity that becomes an heir because as divine, he is always in authority over everything. He was a co-creator with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past. So he's always been in his deity in terms of that. But what happens at the incarnation is that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, enters into human history as Jesus of Nazareth, who is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus, uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, and he enters into human history, and as such, he is uh, uh, 
he is born without sin, and then he lives his life without sin. He goes through suffering and testing in order to be qualified to be the Savior, and then he dies on the cross that he doesn't uh, cave in to testing or temptation. There is no sin uh, found in him. And as a result of that, in his humanity, he is going to be appointed the heir of all things. He is going to be the ruler over the planet. Uh, and it goes back to, and we've studied this a lot in the past, so this is sort of a quick review. Uh, when, when, he, when, when mankind is created in Genesis chapter 1, Adam is created to rule Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven over the fish of the sea, uh, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and man is to be the king of the earth. But Adam fails by failing the test that God put in the Garden of Eden, the test to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when Adam disobeyed God. Uh, Adam falls into sin, the, uh, the creation falls under the curse of sin, and Adam loses, because of sin, his ability to be able to fulfill the destiny that God had designed him for to rule as the king of the earth. So in God's redemptive plan, first of all, he has to solve the problem of sin, which is what happens when Jesus Christ dies on the cross for the sin, sins of the world, but he has to bring man back to the position where there is a perfect human ruler that can reign over all of God's creation. And so Jesus Christ performs the first phase of that at the cross, and the second phase, when he returns at the second coming as the messianic king, then he rules over all creation. And this is his inheritance, uh, a reward for his obedience at the first, first coming in terms of his humanity. It is his humanity that is rewarded, his humanity that receives this, this authority so that at the at the second coming, it is a human being who is going to rule over creation. It is Jesus Christ who rules over creation. It is not uh, it is not God apart from humanity. So this is the role of the God-man Savior within our understanding of Christianity. So this is what's important to understand. There's not a need for someone to die, pass on property. The emphasis is on ownership, on authority, on on property. Now, we looked at that mostly last time. Third category, I think we touched on this last time, is that there were, we have to go back into the Old Testament to understand this concept of inheritance and heirship because many of these passages, especially uh, in, in Hebrews, and many of you went through uh, with me an in-depth study of Hebrews around 10 years ago, and I know all of us have memories that have faded in terms of that, but we understand and remember mostly uh, the major concepts that we covered. But what we saw in Hebrews was that the writer of Hebrews, who speaks about inheritance and heirship a, a tremendous amount all through that epistle, does so on the basis of a vast number of quotations from the Old Testament. So we have to go back to the Old Testament to understand how these words were used. When you read through the Bible and you start in Genesis and start working your way through, you realize that as God introduces new ideas and new concepts and new vocabulary, that that starts to uh, shape 
how we are to understand his, his revelation. So when we do any kind of word study, any kind of discussion on any kind of doctrine, we also we always have to go back to when was this doctrine first introduced in the Old Testament and what did those words and terms mean in the Old Testament because that sets the uh, uh, framework for being able to understand what is stated later on. God didn't reveal the Bible in one lump sum. He doesn't just dump it out there for everybody in one book. When you have these uh, religions that came along that have been invented by individuals like Joseph Smith with the Book of Mormon and Muhammad with uh, Islam, and they have one book. They go up, and it's very interesting to study the similarities between Islam and and Mormonism. That in in Mormonism, Joseph Smith is from this little town called Palmyra in New York, and I've been there. I've been to the cabin where he grew up. I've been to uh, the mountain across the way where he goes up, and and the angel Moroni appears to him allegedly and gives him this this book and these magic glasses to be able to translate it. Something somewhat similar happens to to Muhammad. He goes up to up to a mountain. He's on a fast. Uh, a spirit appears to him, tells him, uh, and is going to uh, reveal the Quran to him. And he's got to, ba- it's not written down, he's got to remember it and then go back and, and write it down. But there's a lot of similarities there. But it's all one revelation uh, given at one time. Whereas the way, the uniqueness about the Bible, what sets Christianity apart, is that the Bible is written by over 40 authors over a period of probably over 2,000 years, if Job is the earliest book and is written before our Abraham or about the time of Abraham, then we have these 66 books that are written by over 40 authors over 2,000 years addressing some of the most controversial topics and doctrines that have ever been discussed in human history. And these authors are from three different continents, from Africa, from Asia, from Europe. They, they write on different continents. They minister different places. And yet they write in 100% agreement. There's no, uh, uh, there's, no, um, there's no disagreement between them. There's no contradictions. And this makes Scripture stand out. And what happens is that God is progressively revealing a plan. He just doesn't dump it all on Adam on day one. There is an, a, a little is given here, a little more is given there, and there's a gradual building, and this is what uh, we refer to as progressive revelation. God progressively reveals more and more, just as you as a parent uh, teach your children. You don't start off teaching them uh, advanced uh mathematics and calculus and expect them uh, instantly to speak uh, three or four different languages or to uh, already understand everything. You start off gradually with the most basic things and then you build on it. And this is how Scripture starts introducing concepts and starts building them uh, down through the course of the centuries. So we study things as they're developed uh, across the uh, panorama of history in the Old Testament. So in this third point, we're going back to the Old Testament concept of inheritance is first introduced, talked about with Abraham, where we have the the terminology used, and then it's developed more during the time uh, of Moses, Mount Sinai, in the books of uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But uh, the foundation will take us back to looking at Abraham and at 
at, at, at Genesis. So there are certain categories of people when we go to the Old Testament. Uh, we understand that, that throughout, uh, throughout the Old Testament, the, the possession of the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is consistently referred to by this word inheritance. And the word inheritance, as we've seen, is a word that talks about possession. God says, I will give you this land as an inheritance, as a possession, and it will be yours throughout all of the generations. And so this kind of language is used again and again and again. So when the the tribes uh, move in during the conquest period, they are given their inheritance, and the land is then divided up, and in, in the, the last part of the book of Joshua sort of reads like a real estate contract because the the borders are all set out for each particular tribe so that they would then go to their tribal allotment and then they were responsible for defeating the Canaanites who were there and they failed and that's part of the story going on into the book of Judges. But the idea is that they're, they're each given this tribal allotment but not everyone, not every tribe. There were some that there was one tribe that was not given a possession in the land. They were not given any any tribal allotment, and that's the tribe of the Levites. So you have three different kinds of people who live in Israel. You have those that are called sojourners, and this was a term that was used to refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they didn't own any land or real estate in the land that God gave them, other than the burial place. Uh, the cave of Machpelah that uh, Abraham purchased for the burial of his wife Sarah and for himself. And you can go there today. Of course, it's been impacted by the the whole uh, Israeli-Palestinian-Israeli-Arab conflict, and the Arabs control two, uh, two parts of it, or two-thirds of it, and the, or, or excuse me, one-third of it, and the Jews... The Israelis have control of, of uh, two-thirds of it, and so you can go in and you can see uh, see parts of it. Of course, you can't go down into the cave. They just uh, Herod built a huge uh, edifice on top of it, and you can go in there and you can see uh, the monuments that are there uh, for uh, Abraham and Sarah and for uh, uh, Jacob and Leah. Uh, buried there. Rachel is buried outside of uh, of Bethlehem. So you have uh, the, their sojourners. These people they lived in the land, but they didn't own any real estate there. Uh, strangers were uh, aliens. They were not is they were not Jews. They had no ownership in the land. They weren't converting to become Jews like Ruth did when she married uh, when she was originally married, and then later when she married Boaz. Uh, they be, they were she was a Moabitess, so she became uh, Jewish, and that happened as well. So, but strangers are those who were not uh, not Jewish and did not have property rights in the land. And then there was a tribe of Levi, and the Levites were not given any land. They were to be scattered out among all of the uh, all of the tribes, so that there would be a Levite living within a short distance of every every Jew in the land that they could go to for uh, instruction on the law. So God provided the, the Levites for that particular role to teach the people about himself, to teach them the proper uh, rituals, proper sacrifices, and to te- teach the law. So you, 
ownership in the land or inheritance was not something everybody had. You had uh, people who had inheritance in the land, but not everybody uh, was was an heir. You had many people who lived there, but only a few that were uh, owners in the land. And that's important because it helps us understand inheritance passages applied to church-age believers that too often when we get to passages in the New Testament where it talks about those who commit this list of sins will not inherit the kingdom. Too often that phrase has been interpreted to mean they won't go into heaven. But inheriting the kingdom doesn't mean getting into heaven. It means having certain ownership responsibilities and privileges in the kingdom. There will be many believers who are in the kingdom, but they don't have an inheritance in the kingdom because they have failed. Now, that's kind of the summary, and we'll look at the precedence for this in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. So a couple of passages that I pointed out uh, that I pointed out last time would be uh, passages such as Exodus 12:48. If a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let his males be circumcised and then let him come near to celebrate it. So you have these who are not uh, owners in the land. They're just sojourners there. We would call them resident aliens, but they don't have the same rights and privileges as the citizens do. Uh, in the land, those who uh, have in inheritance rights. Uh, the passage pa- passage dealing with the uh, dealing with the uh, Levites, Numbers eighteen twenty. Then the Lord said to Aaron, Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. That's the Hebrew word nachal, which means to inherit or to possess, nor own any portion among them. Then God says, I am your portion. Now, that word portion is important. It's the word helic, which has the idea of of a portion or a share in an inheritance. And it is translated often with the Greek word klerase, which goes back to what I talked about when I was talking about kleronomeo, kleronomeo, kleronomos, that that first part of that word, that K-L-E, is, is the Greek Root that means a portion or a share. So God is telling the Levites that He is their inheritance. So it has to do with that personal relationship. Now, where that's going to be important is part of uh, the study of inheritance is that when when we get to heaven, uh, that every Christian has certain things in common. Everybody's going to have a resurrection body. Everybody's going to be absentist in nature. Everybody is going to have uh, maximum happiness in relationship to them as an individual. But in other words, everybody's going to have a happy cup. But not everybody's happy cup is going to be the same size. Some people are going to have a smaller happy cup or a smaller capacity. Other people are going to have a greater capacity depending on what happens in their spiritual growth in this life. But everybody's cup is going to be full. And so their experience is going to be of maximum happiness. They are not going to have any sorrow. There's not going to be any tears or pain for all those things will have passed away. So everyone is going to have joy, but not everyone is going to have the same capacity for joy. And so they won't have the same fullness of joy, but their capacity will be full. So they will be 
they will be happy and have great happiness and not know any any loss or anything less than that. So these passages indicate from the Old Testament that there were different ways to understand inheritance and to understand this this possession. Now, uh, I want to go on and skip to four, point four, which is we'd stopped around point three last time, and this starts this is where it starts getting really interesting. Inheritance starts in the Old Testament with Abraham. So if we're going to start to understand the concept, we have to work through certain things that are said about Abraham. So inheritance in relation to Abraham it can be related to either the land promise or the seed promise. It's tied to both. The land promise is that God promised to Abraham and his descendants that they would perpetually have the real estate rights to the land from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates and from the uh, the river of Egypt, which is not a term, because there are different words for river, not a term for the Nile, because there is a specific word used for the Nile, but from the Wadi El Arish, which is down into the Sinai, and from there, uh, there north, since the Euphrates uh, cuts diagonally from uh, southeast to northwest, it fills all of the area that is covered by Israel, Jordan, uh, much of Syria, and some of Iraq today. All of that was part of the original territory that God gave to Israel for their eternal possession. But they never fully controlled it, or never fully owned it, because they didn't obey the Lord. See, full ownership is always conditioned upon obedience. We'll get into that in just a minute. But the promise is given to Abraham. And we see passages like Galatians 3.18 in the New Testament, God gave it to Abraham by promise. And whenever we see that word gave, the word that ought to come to our mind is what? Grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, no strings attached, free gift, that is God's grace. He gives on the basis of who he is, not on the basis of who we are. So God graciously made this promise to Abraham to give him the land and also promised that he would have a, an abundance of descendants, the seed, that he would have seed that was greater than the sand of the seashore or the stars of the sky. Romans 4.13 makes that same reference, the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through law, but through the righteousness of faith. So again, this inheritance is based upon a promise. Now we have to understand this, and I don't think I've gone, I've gone through parts of this in different studies, but I haven't connected this to inheritance when I've taught through this in the past. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Turn to Genesis chapter 5, and we're just going to think through how inheritance works in terms of this understanding of grace and works and what God did in the life of Abraham. And this connects over to some studies that I don't think I've touched on this in a while. We did talk through Genesis as well as Hebrews about 10 years ago. But I've touched on it in different things, and in the dispensation series I taught last year, we, we touched on this a little bit. In Genesis chapter 15, we have one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament. And let's just look at verse 1 to begin with uh, to set the context. After these things, 
What's, what are these things? Well, the context in chapter uh, 14 is that Lot has separated from his uncle Abraham, and he looked at the beautiful land down in the valley uh, of the uh, of this what became the Salt Sea, and wanted to live down in Sodom and Gomorrah. And this was a beautiful, rich, productive area at that time. And these the kings, these kings from the from the east came that are mentioned in fourteen one. Where you have four, four kings mentioned and they make war against the kings of the cities in the valley and they, uh, conquer them and they take all these prisoners, including Lot and his family, Abraham's family. So they're taking them up north and then Lot takes his, his servants and he has a number of servants that he's able to pull together and, uh, take them to go after uh, after Lot, he's got 318, so this serves as a small army, and he is able to defeat these four kings from the east and rescue the prisoners and to return them to their home. So that's what happens in chapter 14. So after he has done that, after he then took and gave a portion of what he had recovered, 10% of it, a tithe, to uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is the earlier name for Jerusalem, 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 Yerushalayim. So he gives uh, that to Melchizedek and receives a blessing from Melchizedek. It's after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer, of Damascus. Then uh, Abraham said, Look, you have g- given me no offspring. Being one of my, born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he, that is God, brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall you descendants be. So the promise here is related to the seed, related to his his descendants. And then verse 6 says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So what does this have to do with, in, with, with inheritance? Well, the first verse I want you to look at is in verse 5. God takes Abram outside looks up at the star, and without all the city lights and everything we have today, if you've never seen the stars out from out in the country, it's just magnificent. It's it's just incredible. That was one of my disappointments when we went to Grand Canyon back in, uh, back in June and took the raft trip to the canyon, is that it was during the time of the full moon. So, right, Bill? We didn't see a whole lot of stars at night. In fact, you wanted to put on a blindfold so you could sleep at night because the, sun, the, the, the moon was so bright. But God takes Abram out, and he can see just millions of stars. And God says that, are you able to number all those stars? That's how many descendants I'm going to give you. And 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 this is the promise of the of the seed to... to um, to Abraham. So this is a grace promise. It's a promise of, of additional blessing, additional to Abraham's salvation. Now we know that Abraham is already saved. That is, he's already justified before the Lord. So Abraham already at this point has eternal life. 
The eternal life was a free gift based upon Abraham's faith alone in the redemptive promise of God through the Messiah. Okay, now that's important to understand that. That is grace. Now at this point, God is giving Abraham an additional, an additional promise. And that promise is that in terms of this life, there's going to be an abundance of inheritance. There are going to be temporal blessings that are going to be given to you. Now, the reason I say that Abraham is already justified, his eternal life is already determined, is because of the next verse in Genesis 15:6. Now, in the English, you don't catch what happens in the Greek, I mean, excuse me, in the Hebrew. In verse 6, it says simply, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted to him for, for, accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, in English, I want you to pay attention to how we use that little word and. In, in translating Hebrew narrative, he, in Hebrew narrative, when they told the story, uh, the way it's written in the Hebrew, you start a sentence with a conjunction followed by the verb. And the verb is always in the imperfect tense in Hebrew. So it means, and God did this, and then God said that, and then Abraham did this, and then uh, Abraham went here, and then God said that, and then Abraham did this. And so it's telling a story, and it always begins that way, and this, and then that, and then this, and then that, and follows a set grammatical uh, formula going through the, going through the text. But what happens is that now and then you see a break in the text. If that and, which is just in, in Hebrew, it's just a letter, it's called a vav, and it's just a single letter. If that suddenly uh, goes from the beginning of the, uh, of, of the verse from a vav and an imperfect verb to a vav and a noun, that means it's a contrast. So there's a break in the action and a shift. But in this case, what you have is a break from an imperfect verb to a perfect tense verb. And that indicates that the the flow of action has stopped and we're now talking about something different than what we've been talking about in the first five verses. Starts off in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. But Abraham said, then Abraham said, literally in the Hebrew, it's just, and Abraham said, and and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, then he brought him outside. So it's just this standard narrative procedure. But then in verse 6, there's this break by the use of a different tense. And what that indicates is that verse 6 isn't following chronologically the flow of events in verses 1 through 5. The way it reads in English, we think that it does, and that the believing in the Lord is believing the promise of verse 5. And that looks that way and makes logical sense. But the Hebrew grammar doesn't support that. The Hebrew grammar supports the fact that there's a break in the action. Verse 6 isn't following chronologically verse 5. It is instead a reminder of something that has already happened in the past. A perfect tense verb in any language describes a completed past action. So this is referencing us to a completed past action, referencing Abraham's original faith in God. It's talking about the time when Abraham, who grew up in a family of uh, uh, polytheists, now 
focuses on worshiping the one true God, the Yahweh, the God of creation, the God who's created all things, the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that's in them. And so verse 6 basically functions as a reminder that Abraham had already believed in the Lord. Sometime before Genesis 12, when we first meet Abraham, he had already believed in Genesis 12, Abraham is 70 years old. Now, according to Jewish tradition, Abraham begins to follow the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them sometime when he was 40 or 50 years of age. Now, that's not the word of God, so we can't be sure that that is accurate. That's just Jewish tradition. But it makes sense that sometime prior to Genesis 12, Abraham had begun to trust in Yahweh, and he had begun to, begun to follow him and to obey him. And as a result of Abraham's obedience to God as a faithful believer, God then comes along and says, I'm going to give you an additional blessing. And that blessing is, is identified, we identify that as the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to give you a specific piece of land. I'm going to give you a multi, uh, multiple descendants. And I'm going to bless all nations uh, nations through you. Now, this fits something that we've studied before. Uh, you may or may not remember this, that in the ancient world, there were two types of covenants that were typically used. Now, I believe that that all covenants in human history were all patterned after the original covenants that God made with with Adam. So you always have God's actions as the precedent, and then as man remembered how God had entered into these covenants with man, he patterned his uh, human covenants on what God had done. The first is called the suzerain-vassal treaty, big big term, and it simply refers to the fact that in the ancient world when a when a great king, a suzerain, when a great king would conquer various various other countries, he would set them up as buffer states or as client states, and he would make a deal with them because if they can, if they follow the deal, then he's going to bless them, and if they break the deal, he's going to come in and he is going to let loose the dogs of war, and he's going to discipline them severely. So this is a conditional type of covenant saying that uh, I've conquered you, and if you do these six things for me, then I'm going to do certain things to, to bless you, to prosper you. But if you disobey me, if you align yourself with my enemies, then I'm going to come in and I'm going to decimate you and destroy you and all of these things. So we found many examples of that among the ancient, uh, uh, ancient peoples like the Hittites and, and others. And it fits the pattern of the Mosaic Law as a whole, as well as Deuteronomy as a smaller book. It's, it has all the basic sec- sections. It starts off with the preamble, and then there's a historical reminder of what uh, God has done for Israel, just as the Susan Vassal treaties would start with the preamble and talk about all the many things that the great king had done for the vassal or for the uh, um, for the uh, uh, servant nation. And and that's a conditional type of agreement, and that relates to the Mosaic Law. But there's another kind of treaty that was commonly used in the Old Testament, that if this vassal nation, that if this servant was particularly obedient and, and helpful, 
then out of the goodness and the munificence of the great king's heart, he would bestow additional blessings just based on his own will upon that vassal. And that fits the pattern of grace. And there are numerous studies that have come out over the last uh, 50 or 60 years uh, demonstrating that the Abrahamic covenant fits the pattern of this royal grant treaty. Now, what's that second word? Grant. Grant is a synonym for giving. Giving is always a reminder of God's grace. So what we see here is that the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant that is given to a servant that has already proved themselves faithful and obedient. It is a reward that is given to someone that has already uh, already been obedient. So salvation is not a reward. Salvation is a free gift. But you have additional rewards that are given to believers. In modern times, we have uh, examples of this in contracts with with athletes. They get a contract to, uh, they're hired by the Houston Texans or the Houston Astros or the Rockets for a job, and they're given a guaranteed salary, but then they have certain incentive clauses. So they're guaranteed a certain uh, minimum salary, and then if they perform well, if, for example, if they perform well in terms of how many touchdowns they get or how many uh, sacks they have or how many tackles or interceptions, they get additional bonuses. That's what I'm talking about in terms of how inheritance works. There's the inheritance that goes to all believers. It's that basic guaranteed, uh, uh, basic guaranteed salvation that we have, eternal life, uh, we're new creatures in Christ. We have a, a, a new body without a sin nature, resurrection body. All of those are common to all believers. We're all heirs of God, but then there are additional rewards that are promised to those who are obedient, to those who walk with the Lord, to those who are uh, exceptional servants of the Lord during this life. That's the incentive clause to continue to walk in obedience. This answers a great historical question that was a problem for the Roman Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, and the Roman Catholic Church got sucked into a works doctrine because they said, how do you keep, if you teach salvation that is free and all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you have eternal life, then what's going, what, what's the incentive to be moral and to be obedient? And they said, well, they don't get salvation if they're disobedient. So they had a, a conditional salvation, which was based upon works that dominated uh, Roman Catholic theology from about the 5th or 6th century A.D. all the way up to the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation recovered the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that salvation is a free gift by God. You just trust in Christ as Savior. You're, you're given salvation. Well, early on in the career of John Calvin, Calvin clearly understood the free grace of the gospel of justification by faith alone, as Martin Luther did. Martin Luther was the Augustinian monk who began the Protestant Reformation in October of 1517, October 31st. So what happens is that that Calvin begins to write his classic work on theology. It went through uh, well over 15 or 20 different editions, and it started off, it was just uh, a, a few dozen pages, and it ex uh, eventually grew to, like today, it's two volumes. 
And during the course of that time, he initially began to write that in the late 1520s. I think it was 1526, 1527, something like that. And over the course of time, by the time you get uh, 10 years later, he's coming under a tremendous assault from the Roman Catholic Church. And what's their beef? Their beef is, how do you keep the people moral? How do you keep them under control if salvation's free? All they have to believe in Je- do is believe in Jesus, and then they can just go live like they want to and commit all kinds of sins because their eternity in heaven is, is secured. And so Calvin fell into the same trap, and he began to introduce what has come to be called as something like lordship salvation. The idea that if you're truly saved, you won't live in uh, horrid sin. You may sin, you may commit uh, terrible sins, but if you're truly saved, you won't stay in that state for any length of time. If you do, then that just proves you weren't uh, ever truly saved. And we often hear people uh, inadvertently buy into that kind of theology when they look at somebody's life and they say, well, look at that guy. That person is, uh, they, they've committed adultery, they, uh, they have lied, they've been deceptive, uh, they've gotten up in front of uh, courtrooms and they've committed perjury. How in the world can that person be a Christian? And then you turn around and say, well, uh, they trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, so they are, they are saved. No, they can't be. If they were saved, they would live like it. See, that's lordship salvation. But what Christianity teaches is grace, that even though we trust in Christ doesn't mean we're automatically going to be obedient. Uh, there is an addition, additional growth that must take place after salvation. And after salvation, you may even grow as a Christian for a while and then become disobedient and say, well, just chunk it. I'm not going to, not going to follow the Lord anymore, and then you're going to come under divine discipline because you're still saved, you're still part of the family, and God is going to bring discipline upon you according to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, <coughs> uh, 5, 6, 7, and 8. You're going to come under, under divine discipline. So this is the idea that there's incentives. This is what was missed in the Reformation. This is what's missed in Calvinism. This is what's missed in Reformation theology. This is what's missed in, in lordship is that, that grace doesn't mean you can sin after you're saved with impunity. It means that there are, you're still saved, but there are incentives uh, related to inheritance and rewards that are significant, that are to motivate us to continue to walk in obedience after we are saved. And so the Royal Grant Treaty relates to this Abrahamic promise, this Abrahamic covenant, the blessing that God gives him, that in addition to the fact that you've got a secure salvation, I'm going to give you additional rewards. But there's, And this is indicated by the first verse that we just read in Genesis 15. God appeared to Abraham and said, don't be afraid, I'm your shield, you're what? Your great reward. God has said, I'm going to be your reward. This is something more than just salvation. Salvation is something that is free. A reward is something that is earned on the basis of what you do. You get a reward if you excel in sports. You get a reward if you excel in some form of competition. You do something for that, but salvation is just a free gift. So God is talking about a reward here, and this is related to 
to obedience. Genesis 22.18, God then, at the conclusion of Abraham's life, says what? After he has tested him at the whole episode with uh, uh, sacrificing Isaac, God said, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because it's a free gift. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, because you have obeyed. It's the fulfillment of those additional blessings are contingent upon obedience. Not his eternal destiny, not his eternal life, not avoiding the lake of fire, but the additional blessings that God was promising Abraham in time and in eternity were predicated upon his obedience. So this gives us a foundation for understanding inheritance at the very beginning of first use in the Old Testament in in Genesis. And next time we'll come back and we'll go into the the, uh, additional uh, points, developing this a little bit further as we go through... uh, Go through the Exodus and go on into uh, into Deuteronomy. I'm gonna quit just uh, about five minutes early here. We have a, a, a special presentation we're going to have right now. Uh, Paul Miles is here, and Paul is. I first met Paul probably what five or six years ago over in Kiev, right? That was about when you first showed up over there. About four years ago, and Paul's originally from where? Longview, right? the Longview area, and uh, he went over there with a ministry called Bold Grace. Now, if you were here at the Chafer Conference, you heard Paul talk a little bit about his ministry over there, and Bold Grace Ministries is a uh, a ministry related to uh, the proclamation of the free grace gospel, and this book that we were talking about, the conference, the 21 Tough Questions About Grace, was put together by Bold Grace Ministries. So he is a uh, a missionary serving over in Ukraine. So he shows up, and he shows up in Kiev, and he's talking, gets to know Jim Myers, finds out about that, and and at about that same time, you all remember me talking about Jim's translator, Margaret. Margaret went to be with the Lord, and one of the students who came up through Jim's uh, school over there is, is Lena. And Paul and Lena started to spend time together, and one thing led to another. And next thing I knew, I went back over there a couple of Januarys ago, and they were married. And then I went back this last January, and Jim had lost another translator because they moved from uh, Ukra- uh, from Kiev over to uh, Lvov, which is on the far western uh, end of, of Ukraine. So he's back here sort of on sabbatical uh, talking to different churches, wanted to know if he could uh, give another pre- give a presentation of his ministry to the congregation. I said that he could. So he's going to come up here right now. I'm going to close in prayer before he gets up here, and then uh, I'll start up his PowerPoint for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have, have had to study your word, to be reminded that our salvation is not based on what we do, but solely based on, upon what Jesus Christ did. It's a free gift. However, there's also a challenge to us once we become a new creature in Christ to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to mature, to become uh, your servants, to uh, serve you with our lives, and to uh, grow to spiritual maturity, and that part of the motivation for this comes under the uh, category of rewards and inheritance. Help us to understand this because this is vital to us thinking in a broader sense about our life, not just living for what we're doing here in this life, 
but living today in light of eternity. We pray that you would help us to think through those things as we think about the daily decisions we make. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Paul, I think, uh, Eddie, you're going to give him the fire up the handheld. There, set. Let me get this off. We're good to go. And then when you finish, just close in prayer. Okay. Thank you. Alrighty. Uh, as Robbie said, my name is Paul Miles. This is my lovely wife, Lena, in the back there. And we work with Bold Grace Ministries. Uh, Bold Grace started as a publishing ministry back in 2012. Uh, I should know this because it was the same year that we got married. And tomorrow is our three-year anniversary. So, <laughs> And then I met Robbie uh, one year before we got married. So that turns out to be four years. Uh Anyhow, so here's a little map of Ukraine uh, for those of y'all that aren't familiar with the geography. Uh, Kiev is right up there in the sort of northern central area. And Lviv, or Lvov, depends on if you're speaking Russian or Ukrainian, is out there in the west. Um, we met in Kiev. We started Bold Grace Eastern Europe in Kiev uh, with the passion of getting free grace materials available to Ukrainians in print. Um, around 2013, 2000, around 2014, uh, we started thinking and praying about the possibility of going further out to Lviv. Uh, there was a church plant started out there by uh, Jim and some of his uh, students that he graduated, and they were kind of struggling, and we wanted to be a help to them. Uh, then the revolution kicked off and it became evident that the door was not just wide open, but we were practically being shoved through the door. So we pursued that and moved out there in the past, uh, last summer. Um, we decided to take the ministry into a more social direction. We're still busy with, uh, translation and publishing. We'll talk about that in a, a little bit, but, here are some pictures from a couple of outreaches and conferences that we've put on. In the top left, you see a picture of our first international uh, conference. It was on the topic of hermeneutics. And in the picture there, you can see uh, people from Russia, Iran, and even Ukraine. <laughs> and uh, we're talking about hermeneutics and had a great turnout, great impact there. Um, we also like to host other ministries as well. Uh, if y'all are familiar with uh, Grace Evangelical Ministries, with uh, Moses, uh, whose last name I cannot properly pronounce. How is it pronounced? Onwobiko. Yeah, that's it. Uh, they came out with uh, Bruce Boomgardner from here in Houston to Lvov, Ukraine. And uh, we had a great time with them. Uh, something interesting in this top right panel here, that's the picture of, uh, you can see me and Lynn and Bruce in the picture there. Uh, we brought out some of the students from Jim's college and a couple of girls that were interested in getting into ministry once they graduate college. Uh, they were studying at a university there in Lvov. Uh, so we got them all together and had a nice little breakfast and a chit-chat with everyone 
some of us who have started ministry before got to sit down with people that were wanting to start ministry. And we've really been pouring into these two girls that came out as guests. Uh, we've really been trying to encourage them to go to Kiev and get plugged into the free grace circuit of Ukraine. And uh, I was talking to one of them today, in fact, on Facebook, and she has submitted her application to uh, study in Kiev, and hopefully she'll be out there, uh, and Robbie will even be able to meet her next time he's in uh, Ukraine, in fact. So hopefully, we're, that's still tentative, we're still waiting for that. So uh, we really try to be a ministry that uh, supplements other free grace ministries that are already in play. So it's been a real uh, fruitful ministry on that front. Uh, bottom right picture, we had a little um, ESL outreach, English as a Second Language. Uh, had a great opportunity to speak with a Greek Catholic uh, guy out there about the message of God's free grace. Uh, we spent the first four days talking about apologetics, things that Roman Catholics will agree with. Uh, God exists, you know, day one. Uh, the Bible is God's word, day two, you know. By the time we get up to day five, uh, we had built such a relationship with these people that they were uh, really open-minded to listening to what we have to say. And so we got to talking about the gospel uh, and uh, talked to them and said, you know, uh, Jesus said, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Uh, do you believe in Jesus? And he said, yes. So I said, what do you have? He kind of scratched his head a little bit, and we went through it a little bit and got to talking, and he uh, came to faith right then and there uh, through our ESL outreach, realizing that uh, it's by faith in Christ, not by your works and baptisms and uh, liturgies. Uh, another thing that we like to be involved with, you can see in the bottom left-hand picture there, is we frequently open up our homes so that uh, Ukrainians can come in, and we have informal little... Uh, parties and extravaganzas. Most of the people that you'll see in this picture, for example, are believers already. But we bring in non-believers and believers together in a nice, safe environment so that non-believers can meet believers. And from there, it's a lot easier to get them to come to church or to other events. Uh, there are a couple girls in this picture who are Greek Catholic, and I think the others uh, not religious at all. But because they were able to come to our house and meet other believers, um, they were more open-minded to coming to a woman's Bible study that Lena was leading. And there they did hear about the gospel and Jesus. Uh, so we tried to be a nice little safe middle point between the, the world and church as well. Uh, these are just some of our uh, uh, conferences and outreaches we've done. Uh, one of my favorite pictures of all of our conferences that we have is this one right here because we're sitting on couches and I'm talking and everybody to the left of me there is really listening attentively. But if you look at Lena right there next to me, <laughs> this was a picture that was just taken at the right moment. It was really, really late. Everybody was tired, uh, not just Lena. but uh, I, I show you this picture because I want to talk to you really quickly about the man sitting on the other side of me there. He's our good friend, Oleg. Um, when we moved out to Lviv, we wanted to be a part of a church that was struggling. Uh, we're not really ministries of the church. We're affiliated with Bold Grace Ministries. But since we're doing outreaches and conferences, the church benefits from that. Um, 
so we go out to the church and we're trying to figure out what the problem is, you know. And uh, we asked them, okay, the uh, the Great Commission says we need to be baptizing people uh, and making disciples, right? Uh, how many people have we baptized this year? And they say, zero. So I said, okay, uh, how many people have we baptized in the past two years? Zero. How about the past five years? Zero. How about the past ten years? Uh, I think they baptized someone way, way, way long time ago whenever they first started the church. Um and it's, it's, of course, legalistic to say you need this many baptisms every year. But I said, look, guys, this is a pretty good sign that we're probably not reaching out. We're probably not doing evangelism like we should be, like we could be if we're not baptizing. Baptism being a once-in-a-lifetime event. Uh, so we uh, got to working with them on this. And uh, I met Oleg uh, at an ESL outreach that another ministry was hosting, completely unconnected to any of us. Uh, in fact, they're kind of antagonistic towards uh, dispensationalism. But since I'm a native English speaker, they were more than happy to have me come along. I was thrilled with the opportunity because here's an opportunity for me to meet people who are going to be fed works-based salvation and covenant theology, and I can kind of encourage them in another direction. So that's how I met Oleg, and uh, we really reached out to Oleg. He and I developed a friendship. I introduced him to our friends at church, and uh, our church really poured into him. They'd go for walks on walks with him throughout the city at the wee hours of the morning, answering all of his questions. And we received the great news uh, since being here in America that Oleg was baptized out there in the Carpathian Mountains. Uh, now this is just a story of one guy. One is not a huge number, right? But when you take a church and take them from not evangelizing, from not reaching out in the world, from not baptizing, to baptizing, to reaching out, to evangelizing, to understanding how all that works and how exciting it is, that's a significant change. That's a huge first step, and we're really encouraged to see them moving along in that direction. Uh, that's me and Oleg speaking at a DM2 conference that we hosted as well. So it's been real encouraging seeing him grow. Uh, Robbie mentioned the 21 Tough Questions book. Uh, great book. Not all everything that we do is in Ukraine. We're still a, a, a publishing ministry based out of America. So uh, we did a huge portion of our work last year on this particular book. Uh, by the way, I was given a really ugly task. Um, Robbie Dean wrote my favorite chapter in this book. It was on... Uh, Romans 10, right? We need to uh, believe and confess to be saved. And he wrote a great chapter, but it was like 5,000 words. And it's supposed to be 4,000. <laughs> so I was tasked with deciding which words I have to pluck out. And they were all so good. I felt like I was committing a crime against humanity every time I took a word out. it was. <laughs> it's a great chapter. If you haven't read it, I think it's up on your website, isn't it? So really good. He does it thorough job. I really appreciate it. I recommend checking it out on your website. Say again? The oh, the unedited version is up. Okay. Excellent. Even better. <laughs> um, we have a really big book project that we're really excited about in Ukraine. Oh, by the way, we're working on some paperwork uh, for translating this particular book into Russian. Uh, we're really in the 
the first stages of figuring out how this is going to work, but I just had a really encouraging conversation with uh, Warren Dodd from Grace Notes and Jim Myers. Uh, he was just out in the corridor earlier. Uh, we were really excited about translating this into Russian. That might be a project that will take a little bit, though. The big translation that we're working on now is actually of three books, uh, three books by Zane Hodges. I don't know if you all are familiar with him. He was a Greek professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary uh, back in the early 80s. Um, but he wrote a lot of books, and he really did a good job of addressing the error of lordship salvation, which we were talking about earlier up here. Um, lordship salvation has a huge influence in Ukraine right now. Uh, the vast majority of Christianity is going to be Greek Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. Of the minority that is even or uh, Protestant, a lot of it's going to be charismatic. But of the small chunk that is evangelical, it is widely dominated by John MacArthurism, uh, the whole faith plus works uh, nonsense. And so we're translating these three books. Um, two of them will be in Ukrainian and one into Russian. Uh, with the revolution and the fights going on with Russia right now, there's been a huge push for people trying to read and use the Ukrainian language. Most books that we find in Ukraine, however, are in Russian because it's more strategic, I guess, to be able to use a more global language. So we're convinced that if we translate into Ukrainian, that's a real eye grabber. It gets people's attention. Ooh, what's this? A Christian book in Ukrainian. Uh, so that's one of our little dirty tricks. We're also going to be doing a very good typesetting job. Typesetting isn't very uh, much developed in Ukraine. So that's another little dirty trick that we're going to do to get people's attention out there. Uh, we really believe that this project is going to have a huge impact in Ukraine. Getting these three books out there uh, could really change the way that a lot of people are thinking about topics like inheritance and grace and eternal life. Uh, so this is one of our big projects. Um, another one that we're starting is the Bold Grace Apprenticeship Program. Uh, I was reading a little brochure that you had out front that was uh, uh, about Schaefer Theological Seminary talking about some of the error or some of the problems that we have in Christianity today here in America uh, and the pastoral leadership crisis out there. We at Bold Grace share very much uh, the same passion for training up pastors and missionaries and ministers and getting them out there. So. The Bold Grace Apprenticeship Program is a new thing we're trying to launch in 2016. And it will be a two-year program to train people up for ministry. Uh, we do a lot of focus on doctrine and uh, hermeneutics and the original languages, how to study the Bible for yourself, as well as some practical stuff. And we actually have our students work alongside a mentor and start ministry while they're in seminary or in the apprenticeship program so that when they graduate, they're already in ministry and uh, have been so for a while. Uh, this is a really hard sell, by the way. I'm not trying to talk anybody into leaving everything and come to Ukraine uh, to be an apprentice for two years. But if you happen to know anybody that would be interested in studying theology in Ukraine for a couple of years, uh, we'd love to get in touch with them. Uh, so that's sort of an overview of some of the things we're doing, uh, the outreaches, the translations, and the apprenticeship program.
We're currently in the United States. Uh, we're hoping to be back in Ukraine by the spring. Uh, for now, we're doing documents for Lena so that she can go back safely. And we're also raising financial support, uh, both for Lena and me as we do our month-to-month activities over in Ukraine. Uh, but also, we're looking for one-time gifts to cover the cost of our uh, Zane Hodges translation as well. Um, if any of y'all would be interested in getting involved and joining our ministry team, we'd uh, love to talk to you. Uh, we can come talk to you afterwards. Uh, we have a prayer letter that we send out as well. If you'd just like to be added to our prayer letter list and hear our updates every month, we'd love to do that as well. So come talk to me or then afterwards. Um, here's our contact information. Boldgrace.org is our website. You can go there and read articles or just click around and see what you enjoy. Uh, freegracetranslation.weebly.com that has more information about our translation project and my email is paul at boldgrace.org uh, if you have any questions please feel free to come talk to me and Lynn afterwards I'll close us out in prayer uh, Father thank you for the opportunity to gather together here in Houston and listen to some good clear solid doctrinal teaching uh, thank you so much for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are gathered here and so dedicated to your word. I pray that you'll be with us throughout the week and help us uh, apply and live the way that you would like us to. Amen.